Welcome into the 207th episode of the Young Terps podcast, celebrating the 2022 Maryland Men's Lacrosse Championship. We will have Tony Wheeler on from Inside Maryland Sports to talk about the weekend as well as where this team's place is in history. It's been a great run following these Terps on their run of perfection to the national championship from Columbus to Hartford with the Terp Talk crew. We have a lot of great content from Monday up on terptalk.com. Make sure to check that out. And now let's get to my conversation with Tony Wheeler. Now we welcome in Tony Wheeler to the podcast. Wheels R.I. as he's known on Inside Maryland Sports. Tony, uh, well, a lot of the ride we saw together, especially the end of it, but how are you doing a couple of days after the Terps uh, get it done and finish off their perfect season? Amazing. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a long weekend. It was a, it was a tiring weekend. Uh, and because it was hot out too, we, we all were outside more than I think we thought we would be. Uh, so I got home pretty late on, on Monday and I'm not going to lie. I was, I was, uh, I was dragging yesterday for, for a lot. So, uh, but I'll tell you what, the ride back was was a lot more fun this year than it was last year. Yeah, um, I kind of had that feeling. I did not go last year, but it's a lot easier once they win to kind of remember all the all the losses that we've seen. The one that always sticks out in my head is the 2016 loss to North Carolina when it comes to just the, the feeling of loss when this team that you follow, you cover – loses a big game like that it it does but this one you know I had felt personally I was there in Foxborough when they finally got over the hump in 2017 they won that championship but just taking in the scene on Monday was just so special I mean one thing that really stuck out to me was the weather was so much better uh, than it was in Foxborough but then just the moment the guys that you followed over time that have fought for this like Brett Maycar's reaction on the field and Tony I know you got down there so around the time they finally let the media onto the field, which they they hold you back for a good 20, 30 seconds to let ESPN get the get all the good shots and then let the media kind of get onto the field. But just talk about the moment a little bit, what it was like for you just seeing seeing the smiles on the guys' faces. You know, Mason, I'm 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 significantly older than you. <laughs> and so my my scars from from Maryland lacrosse. Uh, are are far are far more. I have many more, uh, and and if I sat and thought about it, I might cry. But um, I probably have been to eight of their title game appearances, you know, over over the decades at this point, uh, you know, since I've since I've been following Maryland lacrosse, and that 2016 game is is almost one that I still refuse to believe even occurred, and so. Yeah, that, that's like Voldemort, you know, like I'm not gonna, <laughs> we can't, we can't say that the opponent, we can't talk about that. And last year, of course, was so heartbreaking. And it was a different experience, though, because of COVID, that, you know, all the media, all the interactions, all those things did not happen last year. So everything for spectators, everything for, for media, all happened at a distance or happened via technology, you know, via zoom or, or those kinds of things. And so you couldn't really get around the players. You couldn't really get around the families. You couldn't, you couldn't get around the coaching staff. So all you saw were, were the video, all you saw were on zooms. And, you know, as you know, it's not the same, you know, you can still see the players talk on zoom. You can still hear them talk and those things, but 
it's very different to then kind of be down that field. I think all of us down there, you know, I remember running into you and seeing you on the field and, you know, seeing all the, all the people on Terp talk on, on the field as well. Uh, for all of us, I think we were all just kind of in that moment. It was so great to see the happiness and you could see, uh, you know, a lot of the players, you know, Logan McNaney kind of stands out to me. Uh, he was standing there by himself for a little bit, you know, after the trophy presentation and after he was named, you know, most outstanding player and, you know, they were all taking their pictures and doing all these things and, and everyone's hugging and taking pictures and they're talking and, and everything was, was really chaotic down there. And then there's Logan standing kind of off by himself. And, you know, I walked over to him and I, you know, I asked him how he's, you know, what's going on? How are you feeling? And he just said, you know, I just want to take all this in. I just want to see all this. And, and I just want to remember, remember this. And the other one that I remember vividly was, was talking to Matt Rahill and, you know, Matt Rahill, some, some national commentators were at first weren't using his name. You know, they were saying, how, how do you attack this Maryland defense? And they, they weren't talking about Matt Rahill, but they were talking about him. They weren't saying his name. And then as the tournament progressed, they started talking about him. They started using his name. You know, if you want to go, if you want to go at someone, you can't go at Maycar, you can't go at Zapatello, you can't go after that, that short stick unit, you can't go after the LSM. You got to get Matt Rahill in space. And UVM tried it. Virginia certainly tried it in their two-man games to try and get try and get Matt Rahill switched on to Schellenberger, get switched on to more. They succeeded a lot of times and he he held up his own. Um, Princeton tried to get him. Uh, they took him out in space. They took him out to the midfield. He was covering uh, Coulter Macasey, the freshman from, from Princeton. They got him up at the midfield. They were doing everything they could to get him away, uh, to get him disconnected from, from slides. And, of course, that's exactly what Cornell tried to do as well with, with John Piatelli, leading goal scorer in the country. All tried to get him in space. So I went up to him afterwards, and I congratulated him. And I said, you know, Every single team in the tournament went after you, the game plan, they schemed to try to get you in space and people talked about you, media talked about you. They named your name. They didn't name your name. And, um, and I won't, I can't give you his exact quote because I don't know if this is, I don't know if, I don't know if we're PG here or not, but his response to me was F all them. And I thought that was great. I thought that was great. Yeah, it is. And you know what? And there's a similar spot that I saw. And, and Bubba Fairman's a player that, as part of the Turp Talk family, I remember doing the interview with him at the Under Armour All-American game when he was coming into college. And it's one of our most famous videos that we've ever made. And it's one that his dad, who I finally got the chance to meet this last weekend, brought up. He was like, you know, I've seen your stuff that, that you do with my son, but the one thing that you meant that you stuck out to me is Wayne said that Bubba is like a free safety or a linebacker. And he was like, I played linebacker. And that was one of the coolest things that anybody's ever said, because that's exactly what Bubba is. But at one point during the celebration, he had gone down to uh, the goal that Maryland had, had done the dog pile on, which was actually where they had ended up clearing out of and going back to the fan section. He had kind of had stopped his feet and I was taking pictures of him. And he was just looking and it was kind of that scenic moment that I, I ended up putting it up on my podcast, Twitter page and my own Instagram and Facebook pages of, you know, the line of Maryland players just standing on 
the I guess the field side of the the section there hanging, you know, they're hugging their families and they're fighting to, you know, see their parents and their friends that are up there. And he's just sitting there watching or standing there watching them. And I didn't really ask him why I was doing that because I kind of felt like that was one of those moments that you just allow a player to have after all the battles that they fought and through COVID and then last year. But seeing those guys, McNaney did it. I mean, obviously, Brett Maycar did it. He kind of had his own moment right there on the field that ESPN did a fantastic job of capturing. But seeing those guys take that step back and just watch their teammates, you know, celebrate. And for some of them, that being their last lacrosse game that is really at this level. I mean, if you go on to play at the PLL, that's great, but it's not it's not what college or high school lacrosse really is. It's it's a professional league that plays on a tour. But seeing those moments is just something that you only get when you win. You know, and I think John Tillman did a great job, uh, both in the interview that we had with him on Turp Talk yesterday and then in the postgame press conference of capturing what it means to lose the game. You know, seeing the tears, seeing the angst, seeing the just absolute defeat that you get into when you lose, but also watching your teammates win, it's still the end of it. You know, and I remember the games that I played at the end of my high school career where we won a playoff game in overtime. We ended up losing a finals game uh, in overtime the day after it or two days after it. And just that quick turn, it's like the highs are so high and the lows are so low. And that when it ends something for these guys, it's, it's still that same moment. But, you know, Matt Rahill, I just I cannot believe, Tony, that people point at Matt Rahill and say, I'm going to go at a defender and it's going to be Matt Rahill. I mean, watching the games, and you and I kind of watch them from the same perspective as people that have played this game at a fairly high level. If you're looking at defense and Matt Rahill is the guy that everyone's pointing at and saying that you're going to dodge at Matt Rahill. We're going to have to separate him from the defense and go at him. That just puts this team in the place of history that I think it belongs. It is, and... And that's kind of what's funny too. I had a chance in, I think it was after the the, the Princeton game to ask uh, in the post-game press conference, I asked uh, Ajax Zapatello, you know, about, about how great of a player Matt Rahill is. And so I thought it was great to hear Ajax talk about him. And what's funny is you recall at the beginning of the year, you know, everyone's like, we got to go after that Zapatello kid. You know, he's a sophomore, he's from Oregon. You know, last year he's playing, you know, getting third line LSM runs, you know, like we're going to go after that kid. And then all of a sudden now people are like, yeah, we're not going after Ajax Zapatella. We're, we're going after the, you know, the guy who really, you know, Matt Rahill's real expertise his real strength really is that off ball defense. Um, his ability to always be in the right place at the right time throughout the season. Um, so many teams that had inside finishers, he completely neutralized. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because you know, he's draped on him or anything. He was still sliding when he needed to slide, but he was recovering where he needed to recover. And, you know, in a lot of ways, he's kind of like the perfect John Tillman player, right? You know, he, he comes to College Park, you know, high, fairly highly decorated, you know, coming out of, I think it was at Spring, uh, 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 Springfield, Ch- Spring Hill, Chestnut, Chestnut Hill. The, it's it's one, of the, one of the prep schools out in, out in the Philly Burbs. Springside Chestnut Hill is what it is. Um, played played LSM, um, you know, as a freshman. Um, they didn't bump him down to close defense until until I believe last year. You know, I think maybe short in twenty twenty season, um, he might have been starting to play a little close defense. But that's just a classic John Tillman player that that you know just keeps working hard, just keeps 
buying into the team concept, just smart guy gets better, better, better. And you're right. Teams are like, we can't go against anyone else. We're going to try and go against, you know, a multi-year starter who has a history of playing big and big games. Yeah. And when you look at it from the scheme standpoint on, on defense, and, and this is something that a lot of people have asked me, but it's been brought up also by some very, very well decorated lacrosse coaches and, and spectators of the game is these guys don't check. I mean, they just run with their guys. They match feet and they hit the hips. And it's just, when you look at a player like Matt Ray Hill and you know what, I'll, I'll give the opposing sides. If you, if you look at Maryland, you know, Zapatello's feet are just at the next level. I mean, with Brett Maycar and Ajax Zapatello next year, along with McDaney, the way that he's starting to come on, this team's going to be real hard to score against next year too. That's, that's not going to go away. And you look at what Matt Ray Hill's been able to do when you get to that spot where you're out there on the Island and people are trying to dodge against you, you know, the matchups are coming your way. You know, you're that guy that's identified and just to, mirror it to continue just to do what he does, which is again, just like everybody else run with your guy. You're talking about a guy that's played LSM at the division one college level at the highest level there is just that, that mere fact that from the scheme standpoint, Tillman didn't change anything. He kept the matchups the way they were. Ray Hills was inside guy. If they want to drag him out 30 yards away from the goal and try and run at him, go ahead and try. I mean, it was just such a matter of watching this team over the past couple of weeks of saying, we do what we do and we are the absolute best at it. And we're not going to have to be forced to change 10 matchups going into the championship game. We're not going to have to do any of that. We're just going to play Maryland lacrosse. And that's the phrase I've used throughout the year is they're going to go out. They establish a system. Clearly nobody has really given them a challenge at it. And they just win every matchup. They do everything right the way exactly they wanted it to do. And even when Roman Puglisi was basically not a lacrosse player out there, was just a guy with a stick and just a body, just running with guys and trying to check them off the ball. It didn't matter. They made that little tweak and it was just, you know, he got the ball a couple of times. It was some tough situations, but they move on. Looking at though, Tony, the Princeton game, what was kind of your take on, on Maryland's performance over the weekend? Because it definitely was not the best couple of games they were able to put together. Uh, and it's funny. I was, um, I, I had a chance to talk, uh, to, to do uh, an interview on, on uh, ESPNU radio on Sunday. And one of the things that, that, that the host asked me was, you know, Hey, you know, how, how are you going to know if, if things are going Maryland's way? And I kind of approached it from almost from the Cornell perspective where I said, you know, look, number one, you know, uh, Maryland can't have a repeat performance like they did against Princeton. And they had what 19 turnovers against Princeton. Mm. Uh, you know, and I said, uh, you know, Weirman can't be underwater at the faceoff X. And, um, you know, Cornell's got this sneaky good ride that, you know, they're third best in the country at riding back possessions. Um, you know, and then two of those three things, you know, kind of happened. The Terps turned the ball over Cornell rides hard, but really, I think a lot of that started with the scheme. I think Cornell looked at what Princeton did, uh, schematically, uh, especially on their defensive end. Uh, you know, I, I think anyone was going to have a hard time cracking that Maryland defense. Um, your best bet was Cornell seeing Maryland wear down just from having such a hard game Saturday. I think that Princeton team was the best team they played all year. Um, I, you know, I saw them twice. Um, I can't remember if you were at the first one. No, uh, I was not. In person. Um, but they played them hard. They were surprisingly athletic. 
of all the Ivy League teams, they were the only team I saw, you know, in person or or on on TV that looked like they had the athletes in the middle of the field to be able to give Maryland problems. Now, like a lot of the other Ivies, they were they weren't as deep as as a Maryland um, or as a UVA. UVA was a pretty deep team as well. So that Princeton game, their physicality and their athleticism in, in their midfield, their defensive midfield especially, really, really gave Maryland problems. And Princeton did something the second game that they didn't do the first game. The first game, Princeton has two really, really good cover defensemen, um, George Bond and, and Ben Finley. And in the first game, they actually looked at what, what Syracuse had done to, to Maryland's attack. And they basically said, we're going to take Molliver away. We're going to take Khan away. Was now says, Logan's going to get his six points. Just, just give it up. But we're going to make Maryland go to their invert. We're going to make their, their midfielders win this game. That's, that was Dave Petromal's game plan. They just couldn't pull it off. Uh, they didn't have the horses. The next week, Princeton does the same thing. Uh, Bond goes to uh, Khan, holds him scoreless. Um, Finley goes to Molliver, get, holds him to an assist. And then Pace Billings goes uh, and, and tries to hang, you know, all over Logan Wisnowskis, who still gets six points. But it was keeping those two dodging threats under wraps that that was the game plan. And you could see in the second game against Princeton, they actually moved Bond onto Wisnowskis, which was really surprising. And what they did with Pace Billings was they double pulled Maryland's midfield. They actually bumped up a close defenseman to cover DeMeo. DeMeo gets held to an assist. So it was really interesting what they did schematically to try and contain Maryland's offense, to disrupt Maryland's offense. And I think they did a really, really good job of it. And they took more than their pound of flesh in that game. I mean, yeah. And from looking at it, and I thought it was the best job that anybody did on Maryland the entire season. I mean, I clearly think that there's so many teams out there. Maryland plays just a regiment of the best teams that are in college lacrosse, or at least a handful of them this year didn't work out. I think as well as they intended it to scheduling that game early against Loyola, who turned out to really not have a great year. And some of those things that obviously they're not in control of, but trying to schedule the best teams was if you go back and look at it through the year. And I haven't really had the chance to watch the season back looking for things like this. I was almost waiting for the team that was going to do that. Say, okay, Owen Murphy and Malver playing attack. All right. I'll stick my short stick defensive midfielder down there and see what happens. Bump my long sticks up and take away. Just take your pick of which guy you want to take away at that point or try and take away at that point. And I remember watching that game and just, it was such an odd thing. You know, I'm so used to final four weekend, 12 and two 30, you know, back-to-back games with not, you know, not under the lights, not at night. Teams really weren't prepared to play there at night. I think the lights actually started to bother both teams late in the game. If you just look at, some of the balls that were airmailed over guys' heads, people dropping it, ground ball play, I think, started going downhill late game. But when DeMeo doesn't score and he gets some of those looks and you're like, Tony's going to score this one. Like, that's just, that's his shot. And it doesn't go in, doesn't go in, doesn't go in. If it weren't for those Owen Murphy goals that were just like goals that DeMeo scores, I don't really know if Maryland was able to pull that game off. And just the play that I think nobody really mentioned was how good Eric Peters was in the goal for Princeton. 
and how good Chase Erland was just to keep that game any sort of really from being a blowout on Monday and watching it up close, Peters just save after save. And then Bond and some of those guys on the inside when they were ground balls, I mean, they just constantly scrapped for them. And I really think that it was, and you don't see this much championship weekend because I'm actually not a fan of the lacrosse that generally played on Monday. I think it was the two best game plans that Maryland had saw the entire year. I agree. I agree. Um, the thing Cornell did that was super, super interesting. And that before I get to that, you raised the point about, about Princeton on their ground balls. They were clearing people out. I mean, it was mm. almost like an old school, you know, like if you would put on tape from a, a, a 1991, you know, lacrosse game and you see, you know, dudes just clearing each other out on, on ground ball scrums, Princeton really decided that they were going to muck it up. What Cornell did, they also played super physically. Um, I was really impressed by Gavin Adler, their, their, uh, their All-American close defenseman. I, I'd been describing Maryland's offense all year as kind of a whack-a-mole offense. You know, just when, just when you think, ah, you got DeMeo under wraps, and then all of a sudden, you know, Khan goes off for six points. Or, you know, it, they're always just, the star's always popping up somewhere else. And what Cornell did, along with, you know, shorting Molliver, I couldn't believe they shorted him, Molliver behind the goal. Um, but they started deploying Adler all over the field. So whoever got hot for Maryland, he was on DeMeo for a little bit. Um, you know, once Long got heated up, they, bu- they bumped him over to Long. Um, you know, they had him on at the beginning of the game. They had him on Wisnowskis. Um, whoever he guarded... He really was shutting down, um, but I've never seen a team do that. I've never seen a team take one player and move him all over the formation against different players. You just don't see it. Um, so many coaches are, are just so scheme, you know, uh, you know, they're just so scheme oriented and they stick to their matchups that you don't see that kind of creativity. You know, give, give Cornell a ton of credit for saying, you know, Hey, if we have a chance in this game, what we have to do is whoever gets hot, we're just going to slide Adler over and see if we can disrupt Maryland's offense long enough in a possession until they figure out where to go with the ball. If we can just do that over and over and over, we're going to eat possessions. And that's what they did. They ground that game to a halt. Yeah. And, and Adler, I mean, I was beyond impressed with just his skill set because he's not really the biggest guy. I think he's, I think he's listed at like 5'8 180 or something. Yeah, they list him at that. But I bet you if you and I were standing next to him, we'd go, you're not 5'8. And he might have been bigger than 180. He reminded me of Nick Grill. You know, built like a fire hydrant. And just the defensive communication from Cornell, especially through that. And, and it's not something that I noticed, I don't think, as much, Tony, as you watching it from the field level as opposed to getting that above view on it was he's just everywhere. I mean, yeah. Cornell did a great job of just crashing the play down, not really making Maryland. I almost felt like despite the fact that all nine of the goals were assisted, making Maryland play unassisted lacrosse. And what I mean when I say that is they got beat nine times in the game. All of them came from assists. They weren't going to, they did not want that to happen. They wanted to make Maryland one-on-one dodge, get to the goal and beat Chase Erland, who's a really, really good goalie. And that, that's a great strategy. I think that's the one that everybody walks into every game with, frankly. And it, it either works or it doesn't. And a lot of times that's what decides whether you win the game or not. 
what I just found to be almost absurd about Cornell is when the ball was on the ground, every red jersey was on the ball. And you don't really see that much because a lot of teams are worried about a guy like Wisnowskis picking up the ball, almost throwing some sort of crazy pass to a guy that's staying on the crease and it's a goal. But Cornell, I mean, all the credit in the world to them. They're down 9-2 in that game. They could have just folded. They could have packed it in. They were also tired after playing half a game at you know, noon on Saturday and then having to come back after that long three-and-a-half-hour break and play the rest of it. But they didn't fold. They punched you mentioned, back. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, I agree with you about the pivotal moment in the Princeton game. Uh, I was sitting next to one of the inside lacrosse guys, um, you know, and, and I looked over at him and I said, wow, man, Owen Murphy hasn't done anything. We haven't even called his name today. And then boom, boom, you know, <laughs> two classic, you know, Owen Murphy rips from the point. And against Cornell, he, he, he could not get his shot off. They were so good at sliding to him. That game got to nine to two. Uh, Weirman has this really interesting history, at least this season in, in game uh, in season history. If he struggles a little bit in the first half, he comes out in the third quarter and he has his tendency to get on these big runs, uh, just dominating. You know, five, six, seven, eight, nine draws in a row. That fuels all of Maryland's, you know, high, you know, kind of high octane scoring. And here he is, and they get to nine to two. They score those first two goals, the first three minutes, um, you know, of of the of the of the third quarter. Weirman's on a four, you know, four faceoff win streak. After Donville, I think, scored the last goal for the Terps, like 11-something left in the game, mm-hmm. Weirman wins the next faceoff, and he takes a shot, he shoots it high. I wonder if he hits that shot. Does Cornell, does, does that game radically change? Does, does that game become like every other game you and I saw where all of a sudden everything starts falling apart because – you know, 10 to two now Weirman's got a juice goal. Then he goes back to the face off and wins another. Instead, he misses the shot, misses it high. Um, Brennan has a, has a turnover, gets a, 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 another cause turnover by Cornell. Um, and then all of a sudden the next seven possessions, Maryland has turnovers, turnovers, missed shots, block shots, save Cornell wasn't scoring either, but it just diffused that run. Right. Maryland just gets a two-goal run instead of a three-goal run instead of a four-goal run. Um, and I think that was a, the, the pivotal moment was in that game was uh, it allowed Cornell to, to stem the tide and uh, to then eat into the, into the clock and make Maryland work. Yeah, and I don't know what it was, and that's a great point. And one that I kind of hadn't been able to put together in my head was why didn't Maryland ever get that role going? And then you kind of think back to Virginia, Vermont, Hopkins, Rutgers, you just keep going back to the games. You're like, what is the tipping point in every one of these games? And Weirman just seemed to be that little bit off. And it wasn't necessarily at the faceoff acts. It was not, by far, was not his two most impressive games at the faceoff X. Um, but the ball just never went in the back of the net for him. It was either saved, he, he missed. I mean, there were some shots that were just plain ugly from him. And then obviously against Princeton, he did that thing where he ran into you know, he tried to shoot when really the answer was run to the corner and hold the ball. And you start to go through just the plays of where Maryland just, they didn't get that 
quick, you know, sneak around the crease and inside finish off of a faceoff. Teams did a really good job of, of you know, you talk about, or there's a joke out there in the lacrosse community that every team will practice the three-man triangle going into a fast break and nobody ever executes the defense correctly on it, despite how much these guys have been practicing it their whole entire lives. But Maryland didn't do a great job of necessarily moving off of Weirman. I don't think the other players had a good feeling of where Weirman was at. And also, you know, those are big time runs from those guys. And once you get into that second game and they're really causing a slug fest in terms of ground balls off the faceoff, there weren't really that many opportunities for him to pull that trigger and just didn't happen. But going towards it, Tony, question that I want, really wanted to ask you was, where do you think this team falls into history? I'm going to be that person and I'm going to say unequivocally, and yes, eras change and the players change and the technology changes and all those things. I think this is the best college lacrosse team that, that has, that has ever taken the field. If you look at the advanced metrics, uh, you know, lacrosse reference um, has a pretty extensive database. I think he's, he's got several, several years of data. Maryland finished the year top-rated opponent-adjusted offense, defense, face-off, goalkeeping. Every single phase, Maryland was the best team in the country. Uh, UVA, that, that, 20, that 2006 UVA team, had great athleticism. Maryland had great athleticism. They, they could have matched athletes. That 97 Princeton um, team, I remember watching them win a national title at, at the artist formerly known as Bird Stadium, um, had a great offense. And Maryland had the most prolific offense I think we've ever seen. Um, that 1990 Syracuse team with the Gate Brothers, everyone talks about that as being the best team. Um, Maryland had the star power. Um, you know, the Hopkins teams that went undefeated, um, great teams. But I think, you know, again, Maryland's overall offense-defense combination, the face-off combination, there was nowhere that, that, that this team was weak. And it's really kind of a testament to just how good they are that everyone is looking at, they were up nine, two in the national title game with four minutes left in the third quarter. That's when Cornell began their comeback four minutes left in the third quarter, Maryland's up nine, two. And, and everyone's looking at it now is like, uh, well, since they didn't blow Cornell out, you know, how, how great of a team could they be? Um, it's a testament to how just good they were that, that we're looking at these wins now that were really never in doubt. Was Maryland really ever threatened by Cornell? They got their, they got the last goal, 35 seconds left, you know? And I've been, I've been talking about that a lot recently too, which is I was looking at the clock when they're on this run. I'm just like, there's not enough time. Hmm. Like all the nerves and all the, all the, you know, moments that we can go on and on and on about in the history of Maryland lacrosse, where they just have felt like they're about to win something. I was just like, there's no chance. No. And when you talk about the other teams, I just don't feel like Brett Maycar, Ajax Zapatello, Matt Rayhill, Geppert, Puglisi, Ferriman, Higgins, and Smith get enough credit. In my opinion, the offense, sure, you could probably pick out one of those teams that had better star power offense, but there's a great set of videos that I encourage every Maryland fan goes and watches, or any lacrosse fan goes and watches, done by Deemer Class about why this offense is as good as it is. And if you watch it, and this is a guy that played at Duke who, I mean, was an absolute ball player yep. and has coached both women's and men's lacrosse at the college level. If you go and watch that and you don't 
really see how good they are, especially the one that says how this team get better without Jared Bernhardt. Yep. It's just, it's almost, you can't even, there aren't really lacrosse analysts that can look at this and even judge this team because like you said, it's whack-a-mole. If it's not one guy, the next guy just happens to be it. Owen Murphy may not be as good as Owen Murphy was on paper this year, but when they needed him, he gave him the goals. Yep. It just, it, never stop stepping up for each other to win. I think that's the thing you can't really capture. I mean, they're uh, great you, on paper, but it, you, they're you even raise, better when the game starts. Yeah, you raise, you raise uh, the point you're saying about their defense, I think is just so spot on. And in that defensive midfield, uh, when have we ever seen a defensive midfield as good as that? Four short sticks and two LSMs that you just could not beat. Um, and that second midfield line, that's the other piece. You mentioned Owen Murphy. That second midfield line meant that no team ever got a break. They were under attack the entire game. Anytime Maryland had the ball, first, first line midfield, second line midfield, there was no rest. There was no break. They're, they were constantly being probed, attacked, um, shot at, uh, unrelenting, and and maybe it's those two things. Maybe it's that 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 rope unit on defense, and maybe it's that second line midfield that really makes this team the greatest of all time. Yeah, Tony, I gotta agree with you there. I mean, even if and this is the thing that I don't think that anybody really realized was it's not like this team went injury free. I mean, sure went down. That that in my opinion, that would have if the if it wasn't clear enough, if they had sure, I think it would be absolutely clear, but even if you look at when they got hurt, Kyle Long goes and plays defensive midfield. Okay. So then you're just talking about wh- where could there possibly be gaps, but Maryland just found another guy. I mean, God forbid one of those attackmen went down and, well, Owen Murphy either would have stepped up or Jacob Kelly would have stepped up or Brennan would have gone and played an attack. I mean, they're just – or Danny Maltz would have stepped – you know, just gone back to playing attack. It's just I don't really think we'll get the joy of watching a team quite like it again. That's really what disappoints me. And and Wayne kind of mentioned it to me. He tapped me on the shoulder while I was trying to, you know, just capture the moments of the final part of the game. And he said, man, these guys are never going to get to play again together. Wisnowskis has never, I mean, Logan Wisnowskis has been playing Maryland lacrosse for a long time. Now, Anthony DeVeo has been playing Maryland lacrosse for a long time. And if I have to leave it at something, it's just, Man, am I glad that I got to watch this team the way I did. I mean, over the years, last year, this year, I mean, even the years prior to that, it's just, it is such a joy as a Maryland fan, but it's also somebody that gets to capture the game through photos and through video. And I'm sure for you, Tony, just to document the stories of this guy, but to watch the Maryland community just rally around this team and realize how great it was. And you know what? The fact that they were the greatest con- team conversation was out there it means a lot because at least you got to realize that it was happening while it was happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of us that followed them for the year and, and being as close as we're lucky enough to be to, to the team, I think a lot of us knew for, for many, 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 many weeks that there were, there were times where you knew you were watching pure lacrosse, just pure team lacrosse. Offense was beautiful. Defense was beautiful. Coaches are the best. Um, just an amazing team. Tony, I think that's about as great, good of a place that we can leave this conversation. Thank you for your coverage of this team. It's been a pleasure to really get to know you 
over these last uh, month or so when we've been covering this team together. And I can't wait for next year. Me too, man. Thanks for having me on. And that was Tony Wheeler, or Wheels R.I., as he's known on Inside Maryland Sports. We thank him for joining. And it's just been a great ride with this team over the past couple of weeks from Columbus to Hartford, just watching this Maryland team finally get over the hump again. Here's to another championship next year. And as always, thanks for listening.